Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. Good morning. My name is Derek, and I'm a good friend of Rev22. I'm grateful for the opportunity to step in while Bryn is away. Um, uh, I serve at Boise Bible College and uh, get the opportunity to travel to churches that we have friendships with or fostering friendships with. And, and so I'm so thankful for the, the friendship that, that I have personally with this church, with John, with Bryn, with the staff. So it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, think with me for a minute about the very first time that you flew on a plane. Can you go back to that? First time you had a jet ride, uh, you know, can you think about some of the feelings that you had in that brand new experience, that brand new idea? You know, maybe you didn't want to miss your alarm. Maybe you're fretting about the height that that plane's going to go. Maybe with the movies in your, in your back pocket, your fear of hijackers or crashing. I don't know. Do you remember the very first time you flew? <laughs> it's a fairly easy spot if, you, if you've flown. You can notice newbies pretty well. You know what I mean? I mean, their eyes are wide open. They're looking at everything, a little unsure about, you know, how to hand their ticket to the ticket counter. They, they just don't know about uh, a lot of things. And so therefore, they're kind of walking a little sheepishly or cautiously, not like walking confidently. And when they walk onto the plane and get into the aisle down to their seat and they look at the seat belt like it's, a, like it's an invention that just came out right now. It's like, I've never seen a seat belt like this before. <laughs> Remember the first time you flew? Can you spot some newbies looking at the stewards when they hand them, uh, you know, uh, information cards or, or, they're, or they're, they're flipping that, 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 uh, that desk down from the seat in front of them and they're looking at the barf bag and they're exploring the, 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 the printed papers right there in front and they're like, wow, they're brand new. And that's all before they taxi from the gate. <laughs> and so do you remember the very first time you flew? That sensation of kind of being sucked back into your seat when the G-forces kind of just pushed you back. It's like, whoa, what is this? And then banking to head into the airport and your nose to the window, like as you see the ground kind of coming up, right? And then, then here, here we go, touching down. And you know you got a Navy pilot when you're like, boom, and you're like, we hit the ground. And so is this going to hold together? <laughs> Remember the very first time you flew? Just a lot of sensations, a lot of things going on that, that are kind of brand new. And then getting off the plane, getting all of your belongings together, don't want to miss anything, got your headphones, got your bag, and then you got to find baggage claim and the brand new airport. There's something about flying in a jet and all that experience that is, it's quite, kind of hard to put those sensations to words until you've done it. It's kind of hard to pair words up to the idea of flying for the first time until you've been there. There's no, there's no context. There's no lexicon for you to borrow words from. It's kind of a completely foreign experience. Do you recall the very first time you flew? What helps is someone who's flown kind of giving you some coaching tips, you know? Kind of like helping you know what, what, what's in front of you, what to experience. It's really helpful to know somebody who kind of has done this before to help you for the journey. Better yet, it's even, it's even better somebody who is like a, a frequent flyer that flies with you as a brand new person who'd never done it before, right? That'd be ideal. 
So that's all just illustration, just an anecdote to get to this point. That there, there are people on a journey who are dying to get there. There's a journey that people are dying to go through. It's a passageway that people will enter through all by themselves. And there's only a handful of people who are qualified to actually give us a, any hint or any tip on offering any advice for that journey. I mean, people who enter through this passageway don't come back. <laughs> Most don't. They can't tell of their experience, and so therefore they can't really shed an insight on how to help us prepare. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? I'm talking about that D word, death. That foreign invader into God's good world, into God's new creation, his, cre- his good creation, death, is, it's not the way God designed things. That foreign invader that comes in and, and messes things up, it, it wasn't part of the original blueprint for human experience to go through a death. It wasn't. On this side of Adam and Eve's sin, we, as a human race on the planet, have kind of grown accustomed to this thing called death, but it's not God's design. And you know, experiencing a funeral, which is highly inevitable, yours, someone else's, I mean, I sure wish someone had been there to help me through when my grandpa died. I just remember as a little kid, how helpful it would have been if Jesus had met me in the parking lot of the Bish Funeral Home in Springfield, Illinois, to kind of just explain a few things for me about what what was going to happen as as I entered into that dark, hushed, organ-filled, somber funeral home. It's not a home. (laughs) To hear Jesus say, hey, Derek, so this isn't the way it was designed. So, how about if I walk with you? Now, if we lived in the first century, near Jerusalem, we, there, there would have been one person, I think, that, that might have been able to help us learn something. Maybe we'd learn something from his experience who might have been able to coach us a little bit on, on what's ahead of us through this passageway of death. He's just a normal guy, an everyday, everyday guy. He's got a family. He is beloved by Jesus, we know from the Bible. In fact, I'm guessing many sought this guy out to kind of have an interview about his firsthand experience through the passage into death. If he were to run a podcast weekly, I think he might title it, Dying to Live Again. This is that guy. And the Bible doesn't record much of his advice for us. But it does record this extraordinary turn of events around his death that I think is really instructive for us in our journey of life the Lazarus story. I'm picking it up from what Danny started last week. John 11 is where we're going to be if you want to get it on your phone. I'll pop a few scriptures up on the screen, but I just want to walk through the narrative. You're welcome just to listen to this, but I want to pick up some of the things that Danny started and just add to it. The Lazarus story, it's all set up this way. The context is Jesus who intentionally became absent and removed himself from the final hours of his good friend in his life. Jesus knew by waiting a a day or so that he would miss Lazarus' funeral and and all that that entailed with his death. And 
it, it would become an unusually grand moment if he just waited a little bit. So he does. But as you can imagine, his delay broke the hearts of, of some friends right there, Lazarus's family, the sisters, if they have husbands, the, the kids. He, he knew the town. It's not a very big town. I mean, second to Capernaum along the Sea of Galilee, Bethany near Jerusalem is Jesus' second home quarters is his headquarters. It's not very far from Jerusalem. In fact, this little map shows you it's just about a little over a mile up over the hill past Bethphage. You, you go past the Garden of Gethsemane to go down to the Kidron Valley to rise up into the temple of Jerusalem. It's that close. And he delays his arrival and Martha shows up in that parking lot conversation with Jesus and he explains some things to her. As Jesus steps into Bethany, he explains to her about what's going to happen. And she looks at him, and she trusts him without even really realizing all that's going to happen. And Jesus said to her, Mar Martha, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live even if he dies. Do you believe this, Martha? You know, even for dedicated pursuers of Jesus... For dedicated, devoted pursuers like Martha, there's something unsettling about funerals, isn't there? It's kind of sobering. It's real. It's the moment when death and life collide. It's raw. It's an unfiltered experience. The death of a dear one, a loved one like, like Lazarus, it kind of it unhinges the door of our nice, neat compartments of faith. It tests us. Funerals test us. But looking at death from Jesus' angle can actually drive us deep into the life defined by our Creator. You see, Jesus coaches us. I think he offers us some insight that the way we view our future affects the way we live today. The way I view tomorrow affects how I live presently. While Jesus is still outside the, the town, kind of inaccessible from the crowd, here comes Martha's sister, Mary, coming running up to Jesus, falls at Jesus' feet, heartbroken at Jesus' absence at the passing of her brother. It's a deeply touching scene in John 11. He knows that the ministry that day was simply not for Lazarus, but probably more for the women that he loved as well. Mary, like, his, like her sister, she, is, she explains her dismay and her sorrow over Jesus' delayed absence while Lazarus was laying there in the bed dying. She's overcome with grief. And in that moment, John records Jesus is present. John records Jesus sees Mary. I see you weeping, Mary. The Greek word for weeping there is actually a different story than the common idea of quietly uh, shedding a tear of sadness. The Greek word there actually describes a loud wailing or, or crying out loud, publicly displaying grief, which is somewhat foreign to our Western developed world. But it's really common in the first century Jewish world to, to cry publicly out loud. And while, when Jesus sees Mary and hears the wailing, John says in verse 33, he is deeply moved. That's the NIV phrase. He is deeply moved. It's kind of a nice description in English of his emotional state, but the Greek word, imbrimoamai, it deserves a more accurate definition. 
In the classical Greek, outside of the Bible, outside the New Testament use of the Greek, this word is used to describe the snort of a horse as it's racing or out to war. Three times it's used in the Gospels. This word shows up. One of those times is in Mark 14 where the disciples, get it, angrily scold a woman from Bethany who breaks open that pure alabaster flask of perfume and pours it on Jesus and wipes her hair with her feet. Remember that scene? Because it was a year's worth of salary. And why waste that? They're, they're angry at that woman at her wastefulness and, and unresourcefulness. So get it. Imbri Maomai describes human outrage and anger. You understand this? Jesus is deeply moved with fury in John 11. I like what R- Rudolf Schnackenberg says. The word indicates an outburst of anger and an attempt to interrupt it in terms of an internal emotional upset caused by grief or pain or sympathy, as important as it is. In this case, it is illegitimate. Jesus, can I just say it, is ticked at what death has done. And John adds to the scene. He doesn't let up. He adds that Jesus is not only outraged, but in verse 33, he says he's also troubled. So if we were there, if we were there in Bethany that day, if we were present, what would we see? I think we'd see Jesus deeply troubled, deeply moved, not with sadness, but with anger at death. Fighting for our peace would be Jesus. So standing in front of Mary in the parking lot of the Bethany funeral home, Jesus reveals a pretty strong emotion. And what, are, what arouses that anger for Jesus? What, what, what is, why is he so outraged at the deepest level? He's definitely not mad at the women. He's not mad at the mourners. Rather, I think he's overcome by the futility of their sorrow in light of the reality of who's standing in their presence on the resurrection. And their futile sorrow angers him. Death has stolen something from them. God's people possess this knowledge of life. They should possess a faith that claims victory at the grave, but here they stand overwhelmed and overcome in apparent defeat. And here stands in their midst the one in whom victory and life are powerful realities for that day and for our day. Jesus is moved with anger and with fury at death itself and the devastation that it's that it brings. He then becomes seriously focused on locating the tomb. He wants to demonstrate his power over humanity's foe at the tomb. So he becomes focused as Jesus steps to the tomb itself where Lazarus is laid. Verse 38, John says, he once more is deeply moved. It's that same verb from verse 33. It shows up a second time in verse 34 or 38, imbrimoabai. It suggests, again, he's outraged at what he sees. The Lord of life, creation life, is now in front of his opponent about ready to confront death as symbolized in this cave tomb before him. And sandwiched between verse 33, deeply moved, and verse 38, deeply moved, is the shortest verse in our Bible. Jesus wept. He weeps. If we were there presently, seeing Jesus' emotional tremor, I think we'd see him weeping, not for himself, but for his friend's distress 
and sorrow. He is outraged at their hopelessness. He's outraged for hope to be found. Jesus, I love it. He didn't dodge that emotion. He didn't, he wept. I don't know. What a man. He, he, he didn't deny that that emotion was real. He didn't try to hide it. He, he wasn't ashamed to express his emotion publicly at the hopeless nearsightedness of his friends. He sobs. Jesus' tears are not for Lazarus. Jesus loved Lazarus like a brother. He knows what good surprises are in store for Lazarus in just a moment. Jesus' tears are connected to the disturbance he's feeling so deeply. The chaos surrounding him in Bethany, the loud wailing, the sorrow, the hopelessness at that cemetery, and all the reminders of death, it all just troubles Jesus. This is not the way. Jesus is real. And death produces this revolting reaction, Jesus, so he works to reverse it all. He's going to reverse the damage. So despite Jewish ritual laws set in place not to disturb the dead, <laughs> Jesus has moved to action. He's soon going to replace the funeral dirge with a dance floor, really soon. Things are going to look a little different than every other previous Jewish funeral. And this, this grave is not a six foot down in the hole uh, like ours. It's a cave with a stone laid across. Actually, some wonder if this is Lazarus's tomb. It's a rolling stone opportunity. The tomb is designed for the stone to move. And so this stone wheel can be rolled back, permitting access into the main receiving room of this, of this burial grave. It's not just one room, it's multiple rooms. And so Jesus says, hey, take away the stone. Martha, sister of the dead man, warns Jesus, Lord, th by this time there's going to be a really bad odor for he's been there four days. And decomposition has set in and there will be bad aroma, Jesus. And Jesus says, didn't I tell you, Martha, didn't I tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? From Jesus' perspective, from his angle, his dear friend is just taking a nap. He's just taking a nap. And he just needs to be awakened from death. If we were there that day, right there in the proximity with Jesus, I think we'd see him reverse death, not to wow the crowd, that's not his motive, but to draw attention to the Father, to glorify him. There, he, let's look at what that means. He does something in a conversation with him and his Father. You, you know at funerals today, it's common to have like an opportunity for guests to like say a good word about their friend or their family member or, or to say a, a story. So Jesus, he steps up to the microphone and he makes two statements. They're not about Lazarus. One is actually going to be directed to Lazarus. But the first one starts with a directed prayer to his eternal father. In verse 41, Jesus' funeral prayer is interesting on a couple of accounts. First, he publicly does something. He looks up and very likely raises his hands, as was, as was common in Jewish prayers. Audible, he prays, which is kind of interesting in our private prayer life norms and our habits. He, it was common for him. He looks up with his eyes and his hands very likely in the air, not to impress the mourners with how religious he is, but to focus on his father. And with his eyes looking up, he says, Father, I thank you that you, get it, have heard. You have heard. That's past tense. It implies that Jesus prayed already for Lazarus to the Father. You've heard my previous prayers, Father. This, this miracle is coming, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't something he had, 
He had not planned for it. I wonder if on his journey to Bethany, he'd been talking to the Father about, I thank you, Father, you've heard. This is not a last-minute prayer wondering what he's going to do. This is executing his plan. Father, he says, I knew you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing there that they may believe you sent me. Jesus doesn't address God as our Father, like the Lord's Prayer, our Father. No, this is just him and his Father. A personal, intimate attention point with the Father. For the three years of ministry that Jesus had during the three years, ministry he does is, is done in concert with the Father. It's in sync with the Father. He never, ever acts autonomously from the Father. As he says back in chapter, chapter 5, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son does. Jesus never, ever works without a conference session with his Father. And here's no exception. And the result, the result at this point in the funeral service, <laughs> the organist begins to play that old Hammond organ in Bethany with a different tune completely. There's no more drudgery. It's going to be a dance. All the stops have been pulled out. And when Jesus turns his attention directly to Lazarus, John records him saying in verse 44, with a loud voice, Lazarus come out. A loud voice. It's actually used six times by John. It's not a whisper. It's not a cordial request. It's a shout. It is a raw, authoritative declaration to dead ears. That's the idea. And as a good, obedient disciple, Lazarus does as his master commanded. He <laughs> comes out and he emerges from the tomb. It must have been quite a shock. If we had been there, it must have been quite an amazing spectacle for the crowd, for us. Undoubtedly, we might have shrunk him back in, in awe. This is unheard of. Lazarus, standing before Jesus, we would see him wrapped tightly in traditional Jewish grave wrappings, strips of fabric wound around his limbs, filled with burial spices, with a, with a fine linen cloth across his face. And Jesus, if we were there, we might see him walk up to that once dead, now breathing friend. John is silent on this. The text is silent on this, but we know Jesus loved Lazarus, and it's hard to imagine him not being the first one to want to embrace his friend back to life. I don't know, but I just wonder. Shunning all the Jewish purification laws, of course, that's up Jesus' pattern, right? Jesus then orders that someone unbind his friend, and clearly there was no resuscitation here. This was not a resuscitation. This is a resurrection. The man who was dead is now alive. Something happened in Bethany that day that was unparalleled. That, that may be why it's one of the longest narratives in John's gospel. The creator of life acted decisively against his enemy, death. And here's the general pattern for John's gospel and his message of Jesus in the gospel. The pattern is this. Jesus entered into human history and brought seven signs Seven signs, not miracles. John doesn't use the word miracle. John uses the word signs that point to his true identity. The story of Jesus reversing, or as C.S. Lewis said, talking about rewinding death of his close friend is the seventh sign, the final sign in John's gospel account. With the previous six signs, they do what they're supposed to. They all point to something. They all draw people's attention to something beyond that event. Now they're pointing to this event. And I don't think it's any accident 
that the number seven is something that John picks up on, that symbolic number from the Bible of completion. The seventh day after six days of, of, of creation. The seven days of a Jewish wedding. Seven's predominant throughout the scripture. This is the seventh sign, and it's the most important sign in John's gospel. It not only unveils the ultimate power and authority of Jesus, it points, as a sign does, it points to something more ultimate and an all-encompassing sign of all, Jesus' own resurrection. This scene in John 11 points to what's going to happen a few chapters later. It points ahead down the road. The story of Lazarus' empty tomb anticipates Jesus' own empty tomb. And if Lazarus' resurrection is the final climactic seventh sign, how much more? If this is the seventh climactic sign in John's gospel, how much more will Jesus' own glorified, resurrected life from the grave be the ultimate sign for us today? His announcement of hope, this hope of living and what it means to live on the other side of death. Consider this a little further with me. Let's talk about what this might look like for our life. What does it mean to face a grave in the company of the risen Jesus who walked out of his grave? What does it mean to face a grave in the company of the one who walked out of his own? Well, here's a couple of thoughts. One, for, th- for anyone who is in Jesus, for anyone who is intimately with Jesus, who is intertwined with Jesus and is, and is indwelling by his presence in the Holy Spirit, then this means possessing a deposit of eternal life now. This means possessing a deposit of eternal life here and now. I think if we lived back then, we could talk to Lazarus and gain some insight on how successfully to pass through death. He might give us an input, but I think he would quickly move through his experience of dying to get through the experience of rising. He would say, guys, let me tell you what, death is hard. It is, it is painful. He, he might say that. But let me tell you this. There's nothing compared to my days on earth to hear Jesus' voice when I was asleep. His voice is the best alarm clock I've ever had. And I was awakened by God's eternal breath. Now that, my friend Lazarus would tell us, that, my friend, is worth dying for again. Here's a reality for the dedicated, for the devoted pursuer of Jesus, possessing a deposited seed of life eternal today. Paul, the follower of Paul, wrote to a church in ancient Ephesus these words. He said, but because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. There's the first with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions, and he raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Possessing life because it's Jesus' life within us. We possess this deposit of eternal life here and now. Not fully, but a seed of it. Every age kind of struggles with the finality of the grave, doesn't it? Every, every epoch, every era, and the incomprehensibility of, of death. Grief and anxiety and sorrow. Those are legit feelings, but they thrive in the presence of death. But they're not the Lord of reality for Jesus' followers. We possess life. Jesus' life. In some respects, we live in an age that does its very best to deny death, you know? 
We don't like to talk about it. People today rarely die at home surrounded by loved ones. Their bodies are no longer dressed and prepared for burial by their family as they were not just but a couple of decades ago. Today, it's different. Today, the process has been so sanitized, taken over by professionals from hospitals, from hospice, from morticians. We build coffins, don't we? We, we buy coffins <laughs> that, that look like, like plush, oversized jewelry boxes. <laughs> In cemeteries, aren't cemeteries, they, they evoke peace and serenity like a botanical garden. And we use euphemisms. Mr. Sternitsky, he passed away on Tuesday. I think all in an effort to kind of gloss over what we dare not say. All this is crucial. All this is crucial to understand because it's cultural. It's cultural springing up from a heartfelt wish to make death today pleasant. But we mask what it really is with that. Even making the prettiest, more pleasant funeral service a real disguise. Perhaps that's why in the work of the church, funerals, in contrast to weddings, funerals become such a potent opportunity to share gospel hope when a friend or a family member has died. It's in the raw vulnerability of the cemetery, we stand and we are confronted by a personal fate we'd rather not look at, but we face it up. For Christ followers, it's a whole different deal, though. For Christ followers, it's different. Paul the apostle said this to the Christians in ancient Colossae. He said, since then, you who are intimate with Jesus and he's a part of your life, since then you have been raised with Christ, Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. I love that. Hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. There's a sense that we possess a deposit of eternal life with him right now. What does it mean to be in the company of the risen Jesus who walked out of his grave when we're in front of our grave? Secondly, it means knowing Jesus' resurrection to the fullest extent. It means knowing Jesus' resurrection to the full. Paul, in that, that letter to the Ephesians, he starts the letter out by confirming in their hearts some features that have a, a core to their identity when you're wedded to the person of Jesus. Listen to what he says. He says at the beginning of Ephesians chapter one, I pray, brothers and sisters in Christ, that your eyes, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know three things. You would know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly realms. I pray, Paul says, that you would know, you would have knowledge. Now that kind of prayer actually changes our perspective on our present because of a reset on our future. Knowledge informs us. The knowledge we have of our future indeed influences and impacts the way we view our today and our present. So know his resurrection. Know his hope. Know, his, know about the inheritance. Know about this power that raised Jesus. Really know it. Recall it. Remind yourself regularly. Reflect on it. Remember it. Paul prays that Christians will know the life available to them in the person of Jesus. 
Let me illustrate it this way. When tourists come to Jerusalem, one of the most important places for them to visit is the church commemorating Jesus' burial and resurrection. Guidebooks written in English refer to, refer to it as the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. Arabs and Jews are used to this, and so when they see pilgrims from out of their land wandering through the Christian quarter of Jerusalem, they kind of know where to direct people because they kind of know where they're looking for. But the Christians in Jerusalem have a different name for this church. For countless centuries, Arab Christians have known it as the Church of the Resurrection, recalling their very truly more important event that happened there. If you ask an Arab Christian for the Church of Jesus' tomb, if you were to say it in Arabic, the Church of Jesus' tomb, they would likely not know what you mean. Christian Arabs, they recall not the tomb, but the resurrection life that came from that place. It's a place of victory, and it's a place of life, not sorrow, not defeat, not fear. So to Paul's words, death no longer has dominion over Christ. So therefore, anyone who is in Christ has found a way to defeat death because Jesus, we share in his victory and his conquest. We're joined to the benefits of Christ working through faith that we don't completely get it because we haven't passed through that death, but we trust him. What's it mean to face a grave in the company of a risen Jesus who walked out of his grave? It means knowing Jesus' resurrection to the full. Lastly, it means trusting him. It means trusting him to walk with you through the passageway of death, Christ overwhelmed the grim scene at Bethany. He overwhelmed the grim scene of Lazarus' grave with life. He flooded it with life. John 11 is a story designed to encourage and to bolster us today, to strengthen, our, to strengthen us as we face our own mortality, your own or your friend's. Because of Jesus' victory over death, we can face that. He is the resurrection. He is. He is the resurrection. And that has been imposed, that life has been imposed, and that presence now resides where only the prospect of isolation and only the prospect of fear and only the prospect of death first resided. Now in Jesus, we have a different reality, different definition. By living Jesus by the living Jesus walking with us, we can now prepare for our own funeral. We can prepare for our own funeral differently. Let me illustrate it this way. Just had, I was at a wedding with my wife just a week ago, and we sat at a table in the reception, and they shared this story. I was visiting with a gentleman across the table whose first wife died, and I remember that scene. I was in college. The funeral was in the chapel of the college, and I remember, and a video was played of his young mid-twenties, deceased wife. It was recorded a few weeks before her death when she spoke honestly. She spoke pretty transparently. She was processing out loud, not ashamed at all, confident about her impending death due to her disease. The irony was they played the video while her lifeless shell of a body lay in a casket in front of the auditorium. And on the video, if we were in that room, you would have heard her say, death does not frighten me, for I'm with Jesus. What frightens me are my friends who are separated from Jesus. The raising of Lazarus, it, it doesn't mean that, that now this man 
and, and others like him are no longer going to be subject to mortality or subject to death. It doesn't mean that at all. In fact, Lazarus eventually dies again. <laughs> can, you imagine, can you imagine for a moment Lazarus' thoughts on his second deathbed? <laughs> He's laying on his second deathbed. Can you hear it? A few years maybe after Jesus resurrected, normal feelings of worry and concern or thought about her sisters and family might have crept into the corners of his soul. But there's no doubt on the second deathbed. There is no fear. Been there, done that. I mean, can you hear Lazarus? What's he processing? I like what Leon, Leon Morris says. He puts it this way. Death is but a gateway to further life and fellowship with God. For Jesus' people, after death is a dawn. We will never be the same. Death is a passageway, but it's not a terminus. It's Jesus' life working in us, for nothing can separate us from the love of God's power and presence in Jesus. Can you hear Lazarus' conversation with his sisters planning the second funeral? I mean, the scripture doesn't record this, so let's play a little bit. Can you Oh, my dear sisters, he might say, you know what awaits me. You know what awaits me. There's no loss, only gain. So sisters, promise me, no slow songs, only fancy dance songs, okay? Upbeat, because I'm ready, and I'll see you soon. Except for some physical pain and discomfort, which we don't like, Lazarus would have looked to his second grave with anticipation. I think he would have looked at his second grave with joy. He had confidence of being raised like before. He knew Jesus would keep his word and would be with him through the shadow of the valley of death, Jesus knew, or Lazarus knew him, he was not going to go through that grave alone. So get it, the way Lazarus viewed his future impacted his present. So for us, the way we view our future in Christ, the living one, the way we view our future affects the way I live today in the present with Christ residing, the living one within me. None of us knows our final day. None of us knows when that will come. And if Jesus hasn't returned yet, which I'm praying for, if he hasn't returned yet before our day comes, may we be surrounded by Christian friends and Christian family near us to remind us of John 11, to remind us of the reality of Jesus's life that we possess. They would remind us and recall for us at that moment, that Jesus is with us through that passageway. And may he work through you the next funeral you're at, or the next graveside you're at, or the next hospital room you're at. May he work through you, that through you, the life that's a part of you, that's depositing you, would ooze out in that conversation of hope for the people who need to hear it. It's a beautiful day today because... This is a perfect theme to set up communion, which we're going to partake right now. There are tables around the room. In just a moment, you're going to get out of your chair, and I want you to go grab communion and take it back, and then John will lead us, and we'll all partake at certain cued times. But what a great moment for us to reflect, to really recall, moving from the, from the cross of Jesus to the empty tomb of Jesus, to the life of Jesus, until he comes, we declare in the face of death, you're a loser, <laughs> We declare as we drink communion and eat the bread, victory in Christ. We declare that. May this renew our faith of living, truly living 
as his followers this week. How about if we bow together and we pray and you can go get communion in just a moment. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him and that you may continue to love God.